Welcome to Trauma from the Frontline. My name is Bruce Perham. I'm a counsellor who has provided counselling and training to correction officers and frontline responders for over 15 years. In this series, I will be interviewing a wide range of psychologists who work in the trauma field, key stakeholders in the emergency sector, and frontline workers who have experienced mental health and at times trauma reactions due to the field in which they work. Hi, this is Bruce here. Um, welcome to my podcast, Trauma from the Frontline. Um, today I've got um, Dr. Shelley Turner, who's the Chief Social Worker at Forensic Care, who's going to come and talk about her work and some of her past work. Uh, welcome, Shelley, um, to the podcast. And maybe we might just start a little bit about your early work, um, what sorts of things you're involved in, and the path towards, you know, working with Forensic Care. Sure, thanks. Um, yeah, so like I've been a social worker for nearly uh, nearly 30 years, I think, which is quite shocking to think that it's that long. It goes um, quick. It does go quick, yeah, it does. Um, and uh, I started my um, my work in youth justice, really. I worked there for some more than 15 years, actually, wow. in Victoria and uh, largely in New South Wales um, and sort of worked in a range of roles, you know, as a probation officer and worked in parole as well, uh, mostly in the community, but did quite a lot of um, after-hours crisis response counselling for young people in custody um, over the weekends, uh, you know, when things would happen or erupt with their families and that they would need some additional support in the custodial facilities in New South Wales. Um, and I worked for a, a, quite a significant period of time as the clinical manager of, um, which was actually Australia's first youth drug and alcohol court program. So a pilot program that ran for 11 years, wow. <laughs> a long pilot, before it was uh, eventually, unfortunately, defunded. Uh, but that was a fascinating program with a whole multi-agency response, lots of different uh, disciplines all working together out in Liverpool, some 40 kilometres um, southwest of Sydney. Um, and then for about five years, I worked as an academic at uh, Monash University and Victoria University teaching into the social work programs, which was really important for understanding, I guess, how people get trained for this work and thinking yes. about what we actually prepare people for. Um, and I've always had this passion for youth justice and working in those, um, I guess, criminal justice related fields. And so it was kind of a natural move to go over to forensic care when there was an opportunity for a nine-month secondment as the chief social worker. And um, I've just very recently reapplied for the role and now got it as an ongoing position. And um, I still do some academic work as well. So I do a bit of a combination. But I think my real interest has been in, you know, how do we how do we prepare a workforce to work in these kind of settings that are incredibly difficult in prison spaces, in secure hospitals, youth justice facilities, community corrections as well, which actually has more risks than people realise because you don't have all the, you know, locked doors and sort yes. of those kind of, um, uh, you know, structural elements of security. You've got to just rely on yourself as, as the tool. Um, how do we prepare people for that work to do it effectively, but also ethically, you know, keeping up holding people's human rights in that process? So that's, that's really, I guess, been where I've landed after all these years is really thinking about preparing workforces to, to do it well. Yeah. Well, there's a few, yeah. few, a few <laughs> questions that come oh, out good, of that. Good. Um, look, well, let's start with your youth justice work yeah, because sure. obviously over the last two or three years here in Victoria, um, there's been yeah. a lot of what's it, debate or yeah. a lot yeah. of articles, um, uh, lots of issues emanating out of 
how do we deal with with youth yeah, um, that offend? Um, so be very interested in your thoughts about um, you know of, of what's happening in in that space mm. and 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 your thoughts on the issues of how how do we need to be responding. Yeah, I mean, I think unfortunately we're going a bit backwards in terms of responding to the evidence about what works for um, addressing young people's offending. Um, We seem to have moved away from thinking about a properly trauma-informed response. You know, the idea of building a bigger youth justice facility away from the sort of centre of the city where people are likely to have better access to transport and family connections and supports is really problematic, I think, as a starting point. So building the big facility out in I think it's Cherry Brook, if I've got the place Ch- right. Cherry Creek. Cherry I think, Creek, yeah. thank you. Um, that's a long way away from, from anything, really, and I don't think it's very well set up for public transport and access. So that's going to be really difficult, I think, for families to be able to maintain con- contact with um, young people in custody. Um, and we know how important that is for, for children and families is to be able to, you know, maintain the connections and the, the strengths of those relationships. So that's one issue. Um, and I think the other kind of issue that's really huge on the agenda at the moment is the idea of raising the age of um, criminal responsibility. Uh, when you look at it internationally, uh, Australia's got a very low age of criminal responsibility at the age of, um, well, 10. You know, you can be locked up in Australia if you're 10 years old and in some states and territories you do see 10-year-olds in custody, um, which is hugely problematic. I have a 10-year-old and I think, you know, does this, my my 10-year-old definitely hasn't got that idea of consequential thinking uh, yes. down pat and the neuroscience tells us that it's really not until around 25, 26 that the brain is fully developed and able to really think rapidly rationally about the pros and cons of every decision that you're making. So young people, children definitely don't have that capacity. And I think even that language of young people and children is problematic. You know, we switch between that language all the time. But when we're talking about 10-year-olds, we're clearly talking about children. And I think we should be using that language rather than youth or young people, which makes it sound like they're at the 17, 18-year-old end, which is different. You know, there's a lot of variation from a 10-year-old to a 17-year-old. It's actually quite a nuanced complex area and the debates are often quite black and white and we don't really get into the nitty gritty. So, so do you feel that um, the, the connection between that scientific or neuroscience knowledge and decision making just doesn't work? I mean, it, you know, like are the people that understand how a 10-year-old brain works consulted in, in that process of, well, what's going to be the best way to manage uh, children of that age? I- Look, I think they have actually been consulted and certainly I know, you know, the last uh, big review that was done in Victoria of the uh, youth justice system, which was the Penny Armitage and James uh, Jim Ogloff review, um, it did look at all of those uh, different pieces of information and made a number of recommendations. But I think like anything... What's recommended and then what actually gets implemented, there's often a big gap between that. Um, And I think there's always a sort of political drive for governments to be thinking about what does the public want. But I think one of the missing pieces is that the public's often not very well informed about what really works in terms of improving public safety, you know, and I think actually we should be cutting it off at the pass really early. We should be putting a lot more of the money uh, that we put into building prisons and things like that into early uh, intervention. And when I say early, I mean really early, like back at the infant stage, you know, there's Mm. 
quite a few studies that show that um, child and maternal health nurses can almost identify from the time that a baby is born, just from the family circumstance, that they may well end up in the youth justice system if they continue on at that trajectory. So that's really where we should be putting all that funding and investment at that front end. Um, but it's difficult to coordinate that as a as a, a response, I think, for governments because there's so much um, power in those law and order debates. You know, they, they sort of seem like an easy win when it gets to the politics. Although I'm heartened that this time round, as we're heading into an election here, we're not really hearing it in the same way as we have in other years. So... So maybe. <laughs> well, it's in, it's interesting in a way if you look at sort of the last six to twelve months. It's been less about youth justice yes. in, in the news or or in um, uh, you know in what we read, and you know I have sort of thought, oh, I wonder what's happening there. Mm, you know, it's gone quiet. <laughs> um, because partly from my work within the EAP, which is not with uh, youth, it's only with. Um, uh, officers that, that work in the system, mm. um, you know, clearly the, the level of violence is high, mm. and, and so we've got that mm. issue of, of connecting that to where you put people in prison. Does that, or, or a youth centre, does that elevate the, the level of violence, mm. or mm. you know, how how do these systems work work with that? Um, and so. There's that issue, which is a major issue in terms of the level of trauma that staff are experiencing. Yes. Um, what's, your, what's your thoughts uh, on, you know, you've got uh, young people and, and, and people going into the prison system or youth justice system with trauma histories. Yes. And then the people that work with them end up with trauma histories. <laughs> so we've got two trauma histories. Yeah. I would just be really, you know, interested in your thoughts about, well, how do we work with that or how do we get to understand that if you work with traumatised people, you can actually become traumatised yourself. Now, I think Jung talked mm. about that a hundred mm. and whatever years ago. Yeah. Uh, just really interested in your thoughts about, well, how as systems do we start to, to, to deal with that? Well, I mean, I think even thinking about um, who comes into the field of youth justice to work there, why would you choose to come and work in youth justice in the first place? So I think sometimes people don't end up with a trauma history from working. They already had one when they yes. came into working in youth justice. I don't think it's any secret that people who are attracted to psychology degrees and social work degrees and various other, they often are attracted because they've got some personal lived experience of um, something traumatic or something upsetting or something um, stigmatising that's happened in their life and that makes them interested in that field and want to understand it better. So there's often a lot of self-understanding and self-exploration that happens when people go and study uh, those kind of degrees or even at the diploma level and the certificate level, you know, if you're people working in welfare and things like that. So that's that's one thing. I think sometimes people are bringing that history with them in the first place. Um, and secondly, I think one of the big issues in places like systems like youth justice and uh, corrections is that particularly in the prison settings and the detention centre settings, um, there isn't really a good base level of qualification required for the staff working there. Um, sometimes it's a diploma level, sometimes it's not even that, it's just come along, you know, because the, the staffing is always an issue in those settings because I think there is a broader public understanding that they're difficult spaces to work in. So there's always difficulty attracting people to those uh, spaces. And so the, keeping the qualification levels low also means you can keep the salary relatively low, although it's reasonably well paid compared to other jobs where you don't need qualifications. But of course, that means that you've got people working in those centres and facilities without necessarily a very good understanding of um, 
um, welfare pathways and trauma and complex trauma and what that looks like, what that looks like in behaviour. Uh, and so they're working with young people who are presenting, uh, you know, that their behaviour is, is an actual manifestation of trauma often uh, and they're not understanding it as that. Mm. They're just seeing that as, you know, um, a discipline issue, which is the very simplistic way that we often talk about it. They just need more discipline, you know, they just need some structure or some boundaries rather than saying that this is a reaction not only to the physical environment that they're in, most um, detention centres and prison environments are just traumatic in and of themselves. The spaces are designed to be um, isolating, uh, stark, bleak, you know, they're not meant to be happy, pleasant places. Uh, there's that layer of deterrence that's an important part of how we've structured and designed our systems of <clears throat> youth justice and punishment. So that's one aspect of it. And I think that, of course, rubs off on staff as well. If you're constantly working in those environments day in and day out, uh, it's it's naturally going to uh, affect your mood and affect your own health and well-being. Um, so there's that whole sort of perfect storm, if you like, of people coming in often with a trauma history in the first place. Secondly, not necessarily all that well trained or all that well educated to really uh, be able to do that level of critical self-reflection that you might get through degrees like psychology and social work um, and come into that field working with young people with very complex histories and ongoing complex histories who are also still developing as people. You know, they're, they're, they're growing, they're, they're not fully developed they're not able to control their behaviours in the same way as you might expect an adult to be able to. And I'll put a caveat on that because many adults who remain in the um, justice systems often haven't been able to develop uh, in a sort of natural pathway to be able to control their impulses in the same way as you might expect uh, people without a trauma history to be able to do. So I think there's a sort of whole lot of issues in there all muddled in together um, that create a really difficult working environment that's naturally going to continue to exacerbate trauma and it just doesn't improve actually in those environments. It makes it worse. So, so all sorts of issues come out of that, shall <laughs> Lots, I? lots, but, sorry. But before, and I'll probably forget, but I'll, I'll just, um, I can remember going to a two-day um, training program by a psychiatrist, American psychiatrist, Dr. John Beer, mm -hmm. and at one point he said that um, social workers and psychologists have the highest rate of childhood trauma mm -hmm. of any health profession. Right. And I can remember sitting there thinking, well, at last we're the top of something because <laughs> you often hear that, you know, police have the highest rate of um, uh, of alcoholism and yes. uh, the military have the highest rate of suicide and you hear all these um, statistics. I thought, well, at least psychologists and social workers top one, which is that uh, they go into their work with childhood trauma. And, and so <laughs> it, it's, you know, obviously, yeah, it, it's, it's a well-known you know, it's often what, what pulls us into these sort of jobs. Mm. But anyway, mm. so I, I haven't forgotten what I was going to say. Yeah. Um, but that issue of, okay, we we can see and, and understand the psychological trauma of the youth that come into, or young people mm. that come into mm. these systems because they're they are offending. Um, is, is there just a lack of a, a attention paid to, well, what, what do we need our workforce to be able to do? What mm, do we need? What yep. training do we need to provide them? What do we need to do to equip them to do this work? Yes. Because um, that, you know, from my own perspective, that just seems to be in a major deficiency of there's no connection between 
there might be a connection to put or, or increasing um, about, well, we need to employ people that can withstand trauma, mm. but that's about it. Yeah, I agree. In, in, in terms of, well, what do we actually need to do mm. to support them, resource them, teach mm. them how mm. to actually work with these kids or, or adults? I mean, what's your thoughts? Yeah, look, I'd, I think it's really not well thought out at all. I mean, there isn't a clear pathway into a career, if you like, in corrections or mm. youth justice, because it's not thought about as a career area that you might go into, you know, and I think you end up with people who have done things like youth work, welfare, social work, criminology sometimes, a whole scatter gun, sorry, of um, different types of pathways that people are coming into. So there isn't really a clear formulation of what we're trying to achieve in those systems. You know, we, we've we got all sorts of competing ideas about what we're trying to achieve in corrections and youth justice. And there'll be things like punishment, rehabilitation, um, you know, even in the mental health sector, we're talking about recovery and assistance. And we're talking about managing risk, public safety. When you put all of those next to each other. They're, they're very competing. You know, some if you're looking at public safety and then you're looking at rehabilitation, how do you achieve those two things? You've got to sort of walk, walk on a bit of a knife's edge between yes. care and control. Um, and I think for youth justice workers and corrections workers, they'll use whatever lens they've been trained in. So if you're coming at it from a social work perspective, you're going to think about it from the person and environment perspective. If you're coming at it from a psychological perspective, you might really be thinking about things like what's going on for someone's cognition, what's, you know, maybe a CBT approach is what you might take to your work. But it's there isn't a clearly articulated framework for practice in that space that is evidence-based. Um, there is a lot written and there is a lot about what does work. You know, there's a whole body of literature out there around what works to reduce recidivism, but that reduction in recidivism is only one part of the equation. There's also how do you go on to live a meaningful life? How do you deal with things like past trauma, shame? You know, some of the kinds of offending that people have been involved in is, is very devastating. You know, I think about sex offending as one example, you know, particularly if that's been within a family. How do you face your family again after something like that? How do you recover from that? How do you really meaningfully go on and live your life? Now, that's a really complex space to be working in. And we've got a fairly inadequately prepared workforce for that, you know. And if you think people are in prison, sometimes for many, many years, what's happening in that time that they're in the prison? It's just sort of being warehoused or managed as opposed to really constructively working with people, which that ultimately would increase public safety in the long run. And I think one of the big issues we've got in our criminal justice systems at large is that we've just got too many people in prison who don't really need to be there. One example would be lots of mothers, for example. That really breaks up the family immediately. Many times mothers are put into custody for non-violent offences. Really, the only reason you would need to put anyone in a space like a prison is if they were going to be dangerous to other mm. people. But we continue to use it as a punishment mechanism, you know, as a sort of deterrent. But we know it doesn't work. There's lots of evidence to show that that deterrent effect really doesn't work in, a, in, a, in the way we think it does. It might play some role if you are going to lose a lot of social capital in that process by being put in prison. But if you didn't have that social capital to start with, if you're already in a marginalised, stigmatised group of people that's sort of on the margins of society, you're not going to lose much. Sometimes you gain social capital by going to prison. It's a cool thing, you know, particularly for young people in those uh, areas. It's a bit of a rite of passage, you know, to get into mm. youth detention is, is 
is something that they've achieved. Uh, um, there's some good work by uh, a colleague of mine from New South Wales, Tim Morton, who looked at young people's understanding of um, a, of, of a criminal identity. And it was different to what professionals understand as about a criminal identity. They, he learnt something about what uh, what was sort of a, a meaningful way for that young person to get some social capital in their peer group, you know. Um, and actually drug use was sometimes seen as a negative uh, because it was a loss of control. It was if you could control your identity and control when you go to prison and where you're going to go on your criminal trajectory, that was considered quite uh, meaningful in a positive way. So these are the kinds of complexities that the workforce needs to understand, needs to understand. in order to work effectively. Yeah, and there's such a disconnect between the research and what we actually see in practice and how we prepare those workforces. And I think part of it is because we don't, even in, say, social work, think about social workers who might work in that space. We don't have very many degrees or very many training courses that are set up just for that particular workforce, but it's a very big and meaningful part of our well, and, and, social systems. And, and sort of complex. And, complex, you know, yeah. I was thinking of the number of uh, correction officers that say to me that, um, you know, part of a rite of passage into the, uh, you know, biker group will be, will hit a prison officer. Right. And that will elevate you right. into, so you, you've, you've got that, well, you know, okay, it's worth the whatever couple of months I get added to my sentence yes. to be able to be accepted in the group that I would like to be accepted in. Yeah, yeah. And um, I don't know what's being done to deal with that <laughs> dynamic, but um, from a, um, a creating, it's another tick to creating anxiety in the workforce. If, if you think, well, you know, actually hitting me is yeah. a step forward for the, right. for the person who hits me. So I get that, yeah, that yeah. kind of, if you, if you don't understand the, how the dynamics of the world works, well, then you're not going to understand that, that there are these sorts of things at play. That's right. And I'll guarantee you there's not much training at the university level around that type of dynamic. That will only be something you learn on the job. You mm. know, that's an on-the-job training or a tapping into the lived experience of the workers, you know, and, and what they've learned about mm. the time that they've spent in these settings. And that's not very well captured anywhere no. in terms of being able to inform how we prepare a workforce and, and think about also how we respond, you know, because that group you're describing, so people in bikie gangs or people who are in organised crime, that's very different to people who fall into it because of circumstance or, you know, they've got a drug habit and they, they need to sustain that. That's a different category of, of offending, if you like, and we should be thinking about that very differently. So, yeah. So is, it, it's sort of is it it's almost a bit of a the, the rhetoric is there in these political spheres. So the, the rhetoric of well, you know we're going to rehabilitate prisoners and we're going to stop youth from offending and mm. we're going to do all these sorts of things. Do, do you think in a way that blinds us to really looking at the reality? I, I know I've I've yep. felt that in terms of writing code blue, you know, was well let's just look at what reality is. Mm -hmm. um, this is what people say about the work that they do. Um, and it just seems to me a hard place for, for governments to get to. We actually need to understand what's happening at the floor. Yes. Of, of, uh, and I never hear of any real attempt to, to do that. Um, you know, would you see that as, as one of those issues of, well, actually, let's 
move aside from the rhetoric and let's get in and understand what's actually happening in these environments. I think so. And I, I've thought about this a lot because I've, I've often wondered myself, why don't governments address this in a more meaningful way? And I think it may well be because, you know, there's a lot written about career politicians and the pathways that our politicians are now following themselves in order to become, you know, politicians and, and stay in those positions of power. And many of them have have started on a pathway that's quite disconnected from most of our lives, you know. So very few of them will have had any um, connection to prison systems or correctional systems. They very rarely will they've been involved in them themselves. The only person who comes to mind in New South Wales was Michael Coots Trotter, who, um, and I, I might have the details not 100% correct, but I think he'd been, when he was 19, was arrested for some kind of drug charge, quite a serious one, spent some time in, in prison from, from memory. And there was a big uproar when he got his position as Minister for Education because teachers were saying, well, we wouldn't be able to have our jobs as teachers because of the criminal record Mm. checks, yet you can be the minister and you would have a criminal record based on your past. And this actually sparked a really, I thought, a very useful discussion at that time in New South Wales about police records and, you know, at what point does that end and you're able to start a new fresh life, you know, and he was sort of making that case and making that argument and he's partner is Tanya Plibersek and she was also talking about, you know, at a certain point we have to say the past is the past Mm. and people have done their time and it needs to be uh, forgotten. So that's where it went. But of course, that's that in stark contrast to what's actually happening in our criminal justice systems where people carry this with them for years, you know, the constant, even getting into a social work degree, you can't get in there now if you have a police record because you can't get a placement. You can't do your student placement in a whole range of industries now because of the police um, record checks, you know, and the issues around that. So that was the first time I heard some nuance in the discussions and the debate. And it was because somebody in power was directly affected by this and because the politician themselves had had direct experience Mm. of that system and really understood it better. But very often the voices that are involved in that discussion about criminal justice, if they've had direct experience, they're fairly marginalised voices. They're not really given much credibility because... I think when you get right down to the basics, we still see that group of people as undeserving. We see it as dirty work as well. It's pretty, you know, it's, mm. people don't want to think about it much. They just 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 put it out of sight, out of mind, I think. And I think that's why we got such a big reaction to Dondale is because you had video footage of this 11-year-old being treated the way he was. People were horrified, but that goes on all the time. And I, I remember at the time talking to colleagues who were working in youth justice thinking, wow, is this the first time people realise that this is this is the kind of behaviour that happens in, in these facilities. And we thought, well, actually, yeah, it is because people really don't get in and yeah, see it. I mean, know. yeah. And that's, that's a, I think that brings us to another point that one of the things we're, we're really lacking in Australia is proper oversight of these facilities. And there's, um, you know, the big furor of the UN um, convoy that wanted to come as part of the OPCAT, the optional, I think I'm going to get the name wrong because it's a really long name, but the optional convention against torture, I think, in, deten- in places of detention. Um, they decided not to come because New South Wales was not going to open up their prisons and allow them to come and have a look at the prison systems. And that was all over the media just recently in the last few days as being very embarrassing. But it's not really that embarrassing, I don't think, for our governments because they'll just they'll just tie it, ride it out and move on and we'll forget about it, which we've done with Dondale. People aren't talking about that anymore. Mm. We had a Royal Commission, lots of recommendations were made. Not one, from my understanding, has been actually implemented. <sighs> 
So I think for most people, it's not front and centre because it's also not front and centre for our politicians. It works for them to keep it in that very didactic sort of law and order debate. That's more effective than really getting into the nitty gritty. You triggered a reaction <laughs> for me. In in um, I did a submission in 2018 for the Senate inquiry into the mental health of first responders. Right. And um, it's a big document, mm-hmm. um, but I read it out, out of interest. Um, it was a very uh, – people from all over Australia, organisations from all over Australia contributed to that. Yeah. Uh, and it's a great document in terms of, well, this is where it's at. Yeah. And the disconnect between the organisations, yeah. it doesn't matter which one, you don't need to name any of them, they're all disconnected um, from the first responders and the level of trauma they're experiencing, um, the bullying every second day, you'll open up the paper and there'll be an organisation that's got a toxic bullying culture yes. Yes. and um, uh, it's everywhere yeah. and, and, and it's a comprehensive document that mm-hmm. documents it. Mm-hmm. And that, and that, what's happened to that? Mm. It's probably sitting on the third shelf in Canberra somewhere um, and there are a whole host of recommendations or a host of things that needed to be done and what are we now, four years later and I've never seen any of it done. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, so I really get that, that, yeah. well, okay, why have an inquiry? Why have a commission that tells you the appalling state of, of the industry, yeah. Uh, uh, along yeah. with the show, or we'll 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 do this, or we'll do that. So, and and, and as another reflection, see Shelley, you've activated me. And <laughs> another reflection, you know, in writing Code Blue, which is very sad. It's a very yeah. sad um, collection of very sad stories of yeah. people working in this industry. Not one person in any form of position of responsibility has said to me, it greatly concerns me that people are experiencing this distress and mm. trauma. Mm. It deeply worries me. Yeah. I haven't had yeah. that. I've had its anti-management, it's this, it's that. Mm. Uh, you didn't get permission or you didn't do this or you didn't do that. Mm. Um, so there is this, this aversion to... This hurts people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we kind of have to embrace that yeah. in it hurts people in trying to help people. Yeah. I don't know. Sorry, you activated <laughs> but it. I, I just think let's just get to the reality that, th- that these occupations have immense capacity to psychologically and physically injure people. Yeah. And well, let's talk about that. Let's yeah. not go to the solution. Yeah. Oh, they need more counselling or when they get PTSD, we need to you know, make sure we support them. Yeah. There's so little dialogue about how do we minimise them getting PTSD. I don't know. What's no, your... No, oh, like it's an interesting reflection, I think, and I I guess it's that kind of instinct that people have to, to push away things that are confronting and difficult, you know, and I think we've got a bit of a political culture as well where people get hung out to dry so quickly, you know, so there's always the one or two scapegoats that get, mm. you know, pinged off the the government. Yeah, the whistleblowers (laughs) or whatever it might be. So I think when you've got that kind of blame culture going on at a broader scale, it is difficult to talk openly and you get this sort of post-truth world that we've got at the moment where we know there's a lot of other things going on under the surface, but we've got the shiny, glossy, I don't know, American kind of style politics going on, I think at the moment, even in Australia to some extent. Um, 
where we don't really want to look at the dirty underbelly of what's happening underneath it because it's it's it is horrible and confronting and awful and people don't like it and it's much nicer to go and have a drink on a Friday night with friends in a nice pub somewhere and not think about those things. Um, and you, you do need a balance between those things because I guess both those truths are there. You know, there is this kind of layer of reality that's pleasant and nice and wonderful, but mm. there is also these awful situations in our um, correctional systems and other systems, emergency systems, where it's it's confronting and difficult for people to work. Um, but I think, you know, the Aboriginal um, deaths in custody Royal Commission of more than 30 years ago, and it's worse than ever, you know. I think that that, that, that in itself, when you think about that kind of statistic, that's yeah, it's not a very positive um, thought around whether or not we're really going to respond in a meaningful way um, to people suffering in those kind of spaces, whether they're staff or whether they're the people who are the subject of those systems. Um, I think on the whole, um, our, our politicians just don't want to think about that or they or they also can't connect it to it on at a sort of really personal level because, as I said before, that that's just not been their reality, you know. Um Think about the number of magistrates I've worked with over the years too in the various courts. Their own lives are so far removed from the young person mm. and the family sitting in front of them, you know. I think about magistrates I knew in New South Wales living in Vaucluse and that's been their entire existence. I mean, Vaucluse is lovely. It's a beautiful place and if that's your day-to-day -day reality of nice tree-lined streets and bakeries with organic bread and, you know, lovely, everything's wonderful... Um, and, of course, not everything's wonderful, but, I mean, that's a very nice existence to have with the beaches and everything like that. You can't really imagine what it's like living out in Aids in, you know, southwest um, Sydney and no, no trees and your whole area is social housing and it's downtrodden and the whole street doesn't go to school or work because there's no work or there's no proper public transport. You can't even get out of that part of Sydney easily and there's no money coming in and what little money there is is sort of being shared around because that's how the community is. Mm. It's just so far from their reality and I think you know, that, that one of the magistrates I'm thinking of was very politically well-connected and I think about they're all the politicians. That That's like there's just this big separation between, if you like, the rich and poor. And I've, I have read some stats somewhere that we're at, at a point in the world where the divide between rich and poor is worse than it was in Dickensian period. And I think that does seem to be right because there does seem to be such a disconnect in people's understanding of what it's like to be poor in our society now. And I mean, prisons are full of poor people, really. I mean, it's it's disproportionately uh, poor people who end up in prison because they're visible. And um, you think about, you know, that's an undeserving group of our attention. That's how we think, think about it as a society. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not, not adding any hope to this no, <laughs> conversation. But it captures the... Um, you know, if you look at the rhetoric yeah. and, and then you look at, well, we, we uh, you know, and I think, uh, you know, you read that we, we know better at rehabil rehabilitating prisons than we were, mm. you know, 50, mm. 60 years ago. Um, we're probably not much better in, in child protection or, oh, no, you know, like you look at a lot not. of these indicators. We really the haven't. same group too in we, youth we, justice. We haven't. Mm. So, so t you know, simplistically it's that kind of, well, we need to look at the rhetoric. We're not succeeding. Yeah, you know, we're not. It's, it's not working. No, and and we've got a lot of history. Yeah. someone said to me the other day, um, the French philosopher Foucault, who mm -hmm. I think was more hundred more years ago, who um, was very influential in in Michael White's work, the narrative mm. work that you know, I'm very committed to. 
um, that Foucault talked about, you know, that, that um, you know, incarcerate people in prisons, it doesn't work and mm, then yeah. um, you, know, you don't know what to do with them and then you just keep floundering on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's just got, uh, well, you know, we just have to do more to get in and understand why isn't it working? Mm. Why aren't we, mm. you know, um, and it'll be resources. I think it often just, we're just not actually putting enough resources into it. Yeah. Because um, really interesting, two years or about three years ago, I went to the International Justice Conference. Mm-hmm. So I could only go for one day. I don't work with prisoners. I just went to just get up to speed a little bit about what the current thinking was. And there was a professor from Swinburne, I can't remember his name, Mm -hmm. but he talked about um, there's a group uh, in Australia that monitors the well-being of prisoners when they go into the prison system. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he said on their evaluations, prisoners actually do quite well on um, their mental health, on their physical health, mm-hmm. because generally they're off the drugs and the alcohol yep. and uh, have a structured program, yep. you know, yep. uh, have good nutrition, um, sleep better, you yep. know, that all of those things that we need to maintain ourselves improve. Yep. Yep. And so, you know, I showed this graph where it actually goes up yep. in terms of, you know, in, in lots of ways we yep. actually are, are looking after them quite well. True. And then when they come out, the graph just went. Yeah, that's right. And uh, he made the comment that um, while there's a lot of focus on death in custody, um, more prisoners actually commit suicide in the four weeks being released from prison than they yep. do in yep. prison. Or they overdose and or something And they like can't that. get yep. housing, yep. they can't get... Yep. So he, he um, you know, wasn't really saying prison's perfect, but he was certainly saying, well, from a mental health and physical wellbeing, prisons actually do quite well, mm. generically mm. across mm. Australia on whatever evaluation mm. tools yep. they use. It's when they get discharged. And I sat there and I thought... <laughs> I've never heard anybody <laughs> say to me that our correction officers actually do a good job or, mm. you know, generally yep, 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 yep. I yep. hear a lot about, you know, the use of excessive force. No one wants to talk about that. Um, uh, we'll just punish them for excessive force. Yep. No yep. one wants to get in and understand well, why do officers, police officers, correction officers, what what what's drives excessive force, yes. what is excessive force. No yes. one wants to talk about that. Yes. But, you know, generically they do a good job. And I thought... Officers don't know that. Mm. <laughs> Correction officers don't know that. Yeah. You know, they just feel abused and devalued and, you know, and I thought, do you know what I mean? I'm sitting oh, there and I'm going, no, my I God, do. you know, I do. And they I think, actually work yeah. with prisoners quite well. Oh, no one knows that. No, I, I think that's true. And I certainly, um, in my own research with young people in youth justice, um, some of them valued their time in youth detention for those very reasons you're describing. I can remember one young man talking to me about um, that it was the first time he felt safe because his father was very abusive, physically violent Mm. all the time. So, And his own life was very chaotic and, you know, he said, described sort of sitting around in an empty house with no furniture because it had all been broken or sold off, um, just smoking drugs with the family and, you know, how he hated that. But he had no way of, and I think particularly young people, I mean, they're so dependent on their family. Mm. They can't just leave the way adults can. They don't have that same capacity to do that. Um, And he said, you know, being in custody was good because he had the structure, he had the meals, he had school, he had other things. And so that can be a protective factor. But your comment earlier about child protection is really critical in that because there's quite a lot of studies. Susan Badawi, who I used to work with at Monash University, she's done a lot of work on crossover kids, as we describe them, which is those kids that are in the youth justice system and the child protection system. There's huge numbers of them 
they're the ones who are most likely to remain in the systems as well. And there's been a, quite a bit of work on what happens at the end of the sort of period of time where the state's responsible for them. That's when it all topples okay. down. Um, but it tells you a lot about our current social systems around housing and affordability and housing. You know, there's, we all know it's a crisis in terms of affordability and we've commodified everything. You know, housing is, is, is a commodity in our society as opposed to an essential thing that people need. Everybody needs somewhere to live. But somehow we are sort of in this very much still in that sort of corporatised way of thinking about everything as a business or for profit. And that's very problematic in terms of the criminal justice population because they're the group that struggle the most. And that, that is that connection back to poverty. Poverty doesn't cause crime, but it certainly is, is connected. Absolutely, absolutely. And so I think um, that's part of the reason why some people, you know, physically particularly do much better when they're in prison because they're getting food and it's, it's being paid for and they've got housing, if you like. That's one way of thinking about it. But what a terribly, what an indictment on our society that that's actually how it happens. You know, it, it should be the opposite. It should be in a way, not that I'm promoting, <laughs> you know, traumatising mm. people in prison, but mm. um, if we're serious about prison really being a last resort, uh, because we've tried everything else. Well, we clearly haven't tried everything else. And I think that's the other thing that came through really in the COVID period is that in youth justice in particular, detention is only supposed to be used as a last resort. What we saw all of a sudden was remand populations plummet. You know, they had been steadily increasing. So suddenly... It wasn't the last resort. There were obviously other things that could have been used, but because we didn't want to put young people into custody because of their fear of COVID and contamination at that time, police and all sorts of other, you know, groups were suddenly able to find alternatives to putting young people in remand. So we don't use custody as a last resort. We're not really sticking to that principle that's required in the UN Convention of the Rights of the Children, which is to only use it as a last resort. And it really does start with our youth justice system. I think if we think if we can improve what we're doing there, it may have a flow-on effect yes. to what we're doing with adults. And I think that's really critical. We should be putting as much emphasis as we can. But it's funny, it's often an afterthought. You know, you're talking about yeah. that particular conference. I've been to a lot of criminology conferences and various other things over the years Youth justice is so often just the little afterthought there and even the researchers and the workers in that space are kind of an afterthought each time. You know, it's not seen as important or as um, risky or whatever you might like to describe it as working in the adult system. And I find that really a backwards way of thinking because we should be putting all our energy at that front end and then we might see some better effects, you know, down the track. Um. <laughs> some, sometimes you look at something and you just think it's just so simple. <laughs> it is just so simple to, yeah. you know, what percentage of people in adult prisons went through the youth system. Oh, it yeah, would be, yeah. It'd be, that is just so obvious yeah. to – and I guess – Oh, well, I'll be very interested to to see in the opening of Cherry Creek and the you know opportunity to build a state of the art mm -hmm. or you know um, incorporate the modern thinking about how to work with youth. Mm. Uh, it'll be very very interesting to see yeah. what that connects with in terms of 
uh, you know those those approaches, the the, yeah. the staff that you'll have that will be working with these young people. Well, and I I, I um, sort of can't feel hopeful about it because <laughs> I think it's really against the evidence again to build a big facility like they've done. There's uh, a Sana Oystermeyer is her name. She's a, a Dutch um, researcher originally, but she's at the University of Melbourne now. She's actually developed um, some fascinating work on how to design small-scale facilities for youth justice. So they're like small houses. They're kind of like secure welfare idea, I guess, back to the 70s and 80s, I suppose. But this idea of actually basing it in the area where the young person comes from in the first place, providing some staff to support, you know, and they're designed like a home because that's actually what's needed. You know, when you think about young people who are in the youth justice system, typically they're there because there's problems happening in the family. You know, that's fundamentally the issue. Whatever those problems might be, there's lots of reasons why why there could be problems. Um, you know, it will be financial, it will be connected to housing, it will be connected probably also to what's happening for the parents and their capacity to care or maybe they've been involved in the prison systems themselves. There's whole lots of complexity there. But that's what we need to be responding to. That's where the emphasis needs to sit and her designs are around focusing on that. I know she contributed some of that thinking at the time when, when mm. the plans were being made for um, Cherry Creek, but that hasn't been picked up again and I think it's probably expensive Um but we know those big facilities are really expensive and the costs are immeasurable oh, yeah. later on, you know. Um, any young person that goes on to remain in the adult system, I'm sure if you added it up, that would be much more expensive than if we really addressed it at the front end. So I do find that very frustrating well, too because I think after I, all these but years... But I guess <laughs> it would be frustrating in terms of that was an opportunity... It's a missed opportunity. To, to do something yeah. different. Yeah. And yeah. Um, yeah. now we're going to fast forward a little bit. And I meant okay. to say at the, be- at the beginning, but I forgot that um, Shelley's come onto my podcast as Shelley, not not representing <laughs> yeah, um, Forensic Care. So we're talking about Shelley's thoughts and ideas that have come out of her, you know, long mm. history of work in this field. So that's the qualifier. So Thank now <laughs> mo- moving on to um, your work at Forensic Care. Yeah, yeah. So obviously that's a bit of a... Uh, a shift in into you know a different yeah. um, a different sphere, and you know I mentioned before we started recording that you know I'd often in the prison bump into forensic care staff and you know say hi, how are you going? Don't, not really much of an understanding yeah. of, of what you do. So can you tell us a little bit about forensic care and and the work that you do? And we've touched on it. The, you know, the impact on staff of, of doing that, that work? Sure. So Forensic Care is, um, it's the Victorian Institute for Forensic Mental Health. So it's the largest statewide provider of um, forensic mental health services, which is really, I guess the simple way to describe it is that it sits at the intersection of criminal justice and mental health. Mm-hmm. So um, typically people who have been found um, not guilty of an offence by way of mental impairment they may end up um, as a client of forensic care. That's probably a very simple way of describing it. And we have three uh, main areas of service, I suppose. There's um, the Secure Hospital, which most people know, uh, Thomas Embling Hospital, which is over in Fairfield. And then there's the... um, uh, prison services. So we are contractors in about 12 prisons, I think, um, across Victoria. And uh, then we also provide a whole range of different services in the community. Um, 
and some of those are consultancy services for corrections and support and some of those would be um, court-based services where um, the clinicians are actually doing the assessments and providing some information to the courts Um, and then there's also treatment and transition services so those are focused on people coming out of the hospital or coming out of prisons and like resettlement Mm. kind of services and support services yeah so that's a sort of broad overview Mm. of the various areas and my role is um, chief social worker is to really uh, provide professional support um, to the social workers working at uh, or in all those different areas because the social workers actually do work in actually every every area of the service, I think. Um, and so we've got social workers who are in their discipline-specific roles and then there's also social workers working in what we call multidisciplinary roles. So they're open to other allied health staff and nursing staff as well. Um, and most of those are in the community-based um, part of the the, the mm-hmm. service, yeah. Yeah. So so what, what's what's been... Um yeah, what are the challenges in 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 that work? I mean, <laughs> what 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 are because I I know um, from my days at uh, MAP, the Melbourne Assessment Prison, mm. and Unit Eight, mm. which um, is a management unit that would have a lot of the prisoners that were not able to be accommodated yes. at Thomas Ebling, and so I know from talking to the staff that that work in those units that the the, the clients are very challenging and very complex. Um, psychiatric needs. Mm. Um, so, you know, clearly that the, the complex well, group of people to care for. Um, you know, w- w- what's your thoughts around w- what impact does that have on staff and what do they need to yeah. to be able to do that work? Well, look, I, I mean, I started my role at Forensic Care too in the middle of the pandemic. So I think, you know, my first experience and visit to MAP, because uh, I think you've cut right to the chase, that's probably one of the most complex and difficult areas to work in. And I think really the physical environment of MAP is particularly challenging because it's a very old building, it's a very old style prison. No you know. fresh air. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And it's sort of, you know, I mean, many people don't even realise it's there right in the middle of the city. You walk past it all the time. It's only if you looked up and saw that there were bars on the windows that you'd realise that there's a maximum security prison right there in the city next to the courts. Um, so my first visit out there was, you know, when everybody was wearing full PPE, you know, so you, you cover head to toe in plastic and you got a mask on and goggles on and everything <laughs> else. Yeah. And so if somebody's particularly unwell, um, seeing that in that kind of environment, I can't imagine that that's going to help your psychosis or make you feel relaxed in any way. Certainly for the staff, it was incredibly stressful um, and it was hot. That's just, you know, another thing. People were sweating under those things Mm. all the time. But of course, it was essential and it needed to happen. um, And the infection control was managed extremely well. Uh, But I think it did add to the sense of isolation and the sense of disconnect that people felt from one another as human beings. So, you know, I think the most critical thing in any of those spaces is to be humanising people uh, because I think our clients in particular at uh, in forensic care, they're demonised from all angles, you know. They're demonised on the sense of, you know, because they've, they've got mental health issues for one thing and they're demonised often by the media because they're quite a lot of them are quite high profile. You would you would know the names, you know, there, there's um, a number that you could rattle off that you know at Thomas Emling or um, have been in and out of the various prison systems. And so 
when you hear all that media attention, and I think it's particularly if you're a new staff member to forensic care, that might be something, the only thing you know about the organisation mm. is what you've heard in the media, or you might only know that about the consumer group. So I think particularly for a new, younger staff, and I don't mean young in terms of age, I mean young in terms of in the field, you know, um, so graduates or people who haven't worked for very long, there would be that inherent fear of that group because um, the way it's reported makes it sound so yes. sensational and so scary and frightening and like they're monsters, you know, really. Um, I'm always struck by, um, it was uh, Jill Ma's husband commenting on when he sat in the courtroom and listened to the um, Adrian Bailey's testimony and listened to that whole sort of court thing um uh, develop that he said, you know, this guy's not a monster. He's just he's just a guy, and it was a real revelation for him. And I thought that that really captured, I think, what actually many people experience when they first come and work in a field like um, ours in the forensic mental health field is that these are just people. Actually, mm. they're just normal people, but they're not normal if you like. But they are normal in that something awful has happened in their life, you know, either inside themselves or in connection with the things in their lives, but they're fundamentally a human being and you're a human being and you have to kind of figure it out how you how you work with one another. And so, again, you get to that thing of how do we prepare people for working in that field? And I think mm. that remains a huge challenge also in forensic care. So we fundamentally have um, multidisciplinary teams, which again means people are coming from uh, different discipline perspectives with a different philosophy. And we don't really have a unified framework again for how do you do this work in forensic mm. mental health? There's lots of uh, ideas and lots of contested ideas actually on how you do the work well, um, but there isn't necessarily a very useful national, if you like, set of principles or practice frameworks. That's it. There are a set of principles, but they're not binding. You know, there's not a an agreed approach for how mm. we do the work in forensic mental health. So I think that that creates opportunity as well because it means you can still have a dialogue about that. It's not a done and dusted idea of how you do it. But, of course, the tensions for people is that the heightened sense of um, risk for your own personal safety is always there and that can hamper you from humanising the people you're working with because you're constantly conscious that you might be assaulted or that there might be an assault or there might be aggression that needs to be managed. And I think there's always those tensions as well when you're working in that kind of environment of how do you look to the other staff. Speaking to our new graduates and our new psychology registrars, one of their biggest concerns in the prison environments particularly was what did the correction staff think of them? You know, did they think that they were these sort of touchy-feely namby-pambies that didn't really know what they were doing mm. in that field? There's, there's a lot of macho kind of mm. atmosphere that people are yep. still working in. So, yeah, yeah that's familiar to you, obviously. Oh, I can really <laughs> relate to that. And, yeah. and, and uh, um, you know, there's no answers to it. Um, I often, when people talk about Bob and, you know, how aggressive they are or how... Um, um, and particularly new staff, mm -hmm. uh, where they really get sliced up mm -hmm. by some of these mm -hmm. hardened officers. And I often think Bob wouldn't have been like that at the beginning, you know. Bob wouldn't have come in like that. That's right. Bob's become like that. Yeah. Or Beryl. Yeah, yeah or Beryl. <laughs> um, and, and, and so there's something in this process, yeah. uh, you know, and I've certainly got ideas on it, but there's something in this process that this is what it can do to you. Yes. And you'll either break down and have PTSD or you'll, you'll become hardened. And um, and so I can well imagine 
your staff going in there and the eyes are rolling in terms of here comes a prison, prisoner lover or, mm. you know, that, yeah. that that's yeah, just yeah. there yeah, and yeah. I don't think the system knows what to do with it. Yeah. Um, and, and, but it's there and it's alive and well. And you're right. And I think, you know, I think back to my um, – one of my former CEOs actually at uh, back in youth justice again, who referred to me a couple of times as a care bear. And, I, and that's, you know, it's a real insult to call somebody a care bear uh, in those spaces because, you know, you're soft basically. Mm. But I said to her at the time, I said, you know, that, that, I don't find that insulting. That's good. That means my humanity is intact, you know, and I think working here, that, that's actually the strength. And I think that's where we have to flip that narrative. Mm. We've got to work with the staff before they go into those settings a bit more or even while they're in the settings. And that sort of practice advice or practice mentoring is really critical in those spaces to keep people human, mm. to not lose sight of that that's another human being, but also each other. You know, it's, it's often, often they can keep that perspective with consumers or with clients. I don't like the term consumers, but it is the, the language that gets mm. used. But they have more trouble doing that with one another. They're harder on each other. And so that kind of dynamic of the interprofessional or the inter-staff is, is often harsher and more upsetting and more traumatising and more in that bullying and toxic workplace space than the dynamic between the client and the worker. Mm. That one they can kind of, and again, maybe it is because they can other that person even further, but when there's someone a bit like, there's a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of tension and a lot of sort of machoism in that that uh, and one-upmanship that they need to keep mm. and a sort of stiff upper lip mentality that, that is still there. And so I think being able to unpack that in a meaningful way in a, yeah, either before you come and work in the field or even while you're working in the field, that's that's a way forward in terms of being able to do the work better. And look, one of the things that hits me over and over again um, is the system loses good officers. Oh, yeah. They yeah. lose good officers yeah. because of that, of, yeah. of that, um, you know, we can name it maliciousness or negativity or that uh, almost uh, withdrawal from the environment, functioning but mm. withdrawn mm. From, from, you know, the, the role uh, with prisoners. And so a lot of really what would be great officers are lost yes. in, in that process. Yes. Yes. That, well, the way you were talking, you know, I could visualise many of the officers I've sat with would be brilliant mm. at working with um, forensic care staff with other professionals yeah. in a group situation yeah. or would have the capacity and would still have the caring, yes. the, you know, what we probably call wise caring because they are tricky environments and yeah, tricky it's a nice clients, way to put it, yeah. But yeah. Uh, would, would have a, a great interest in doing that. Yet we can't get them there. Yeah. We, we don't have a system that can transport them into that type of work. Yeah. And so we lose them. Yeah, And yeah. Uh, I've done a couple of interviews with ex-correction officers that will air next year, and they talk about that. And mm. I, and, and for mm. both of those people, I've thought, well, you, you just treated in the right way would have been yes. sensational. Yes. At doing exactly what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, no, of, no, I of, really of, agree of, with you. Um, and, and, and we lose them. Yeah. And, uh, 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 yeah, anyway, so, sorry, I'm I ranting. Think, no, but, I was going to say, I think, though, that comes um, back to the conceptualisation of the systems in the first place and what they're there to do, you know, and I think that's where the politicians and the others at the top really mm. play such a critical role because when they conceptualise it in those very blunt terms of mm. sort of just a punishment system, you know, they employ 
people who are very straightforward in their thinking on the whole. And I don't mean to, um, you know, suggest that just because you've got a qualification, you're going to be any better at that because that doesn't guarantee anything. But um, the, the fact that they don't value the work enough to require some basic qualifications and require some reasonable working conditions for people suggests they don't value the consumer group either, the, the client group. So I think it's that whole conceptualisation from top down that remains problematic. And in Australia, particularly because we, we put these things in, in state government hands, not, you know, and again, federally is not necessarily ideal either, but mm. at least having a national approach or idea about what are we trying to do, you know, in those systems would yeah. be helpful, I think. And yeah. same with forensic mental health. I mean, it's the same kinds of issues, you know, mm. that intersection of criminal justice and mental health. What are we doing? There's obviously, it's obviously a small group actually, but it's very critical in terms of potential for further harm and all the rest uh, of it. And it's just so obvious, you know, <laughs> you go back and you look at what's not working. Mm. And, you know, it's what Code Blue's about. You know, mm. th- th- there's so many issues in the relationship between officers and prisoners. Well, yeah. let's go back and have a look at it. Yeah. Let's understand that. Because, yeah. you know, I often sort of think if you look at, say, somewhere like Unit 8, mm. um, if you had officers that could become a two-pip officer, but so went and was seconded to work at Thomas Embling with the yep. professional teams yep. there, yep. developed their skills of working yep. with, um, you know, people with psychiatric histories, but have it as a form of promotion. Yeah. You can yeah. specialise in that if you're interested mm. in that area mm. of, of uh, so that they are trying to have that, mm. uh, you know, about to protect themselves and that, and, and that needs uh, a lot of resources, but actually teach them to have the skills to mm-hmm. be able to do that, to work with psychiatrists, to work with social workers, to work with the health professional teams, but you've got three or four correction officers that you're working with. Yeah. Because, you know, they have such knowledge of prisoner behaviour. Yeah, yeah. You know, they they understand it, you know, when you walk around the prison with them and they'll pick behaviour, Bob's just about to go off, you better get him out of that group. Yeah. You know, they have so much expertise and it's never tapped. No, I'll say, no. do you ever get to go to a case meeting? Well, you know, sometimes a senior might go, we never go. So it's yeah. not, the knowledge isn't actually valued. And, yeah. you, you know, uh, given the right pathway, yeah. uh, could be really useful to the whole system. What do you workers need? You know, like I often sort of say to people, there's the sprint and there's a marathon. Mm. And when you do first mm. respond to work, it's a marathon if you want to... I mean, you can do a sprint and burn out and mm, leave within mm, two yeah, years. Right. But mm. if you want to actually survive this work long time, mm. a bit like what we've touched on, there's a lot in there that's very rich. Yeah. You know, there's a lot in there for workers to feel that they are making a difference and that they mm. are contributing mm. to a very complex area of work. Mm. What's your thoughts around, but what do you need to ha- – what do you need for a long game? You know, what do you need to be doing – to support yourself in in, in the um, reality of the work? Look, it's a really good question. Um, and, I, you know, I, of course, I grapple with it a lot. And I think I think actually what people need to do, well, there's, there's what people should and then what people do. And I think what people do do and that works well is develop a group of like-minded peers. So over the years too, I've found that's what's happened is that I end up finding people who I like to think are like me, that have not lost their humanity but remain very passionate about that area of work and, you know, maybe in a geeky way like talking about it even in their (laughs) personal time Um, because I think that's important. You know, if you've got a passion for it and you are really passionate about making the 
making it better, then you do find people who want to do that with you. And so you end up building a sort of a, a Jan Fook wrote about it in this way. She called it a um, a positive microclimate, so that within even if the broader climate that you're working in is fairly toxic or unhelpful, you have a bit of a, a buffer against that climate because you've got the people you're talking yes. to every day that are energising you, making you feel okay about your work, um, and that you can go to in an honest, vulnerable way about what you what you're struggling with. You know, I think that was. Probably one of the best teams I ever worked in was the Youth Drug and Alcohol Court Program team. It was an open plan group, multidisciplinary, but people spoke quite openly about how they were working with a young person or a family and what was going well and what wasn't going well and asked for ideas and input on how do I do this better. That's fundamentally critical reflection. You know, that is really a critically reflective way of working. And I must say, when I was a young social worker, I thought, it's a bit of garbage, this, you know, constantly talking about this critical reflection all the time. I don't think I could really understand the value of it. But over time, I've really come to appreciate it because I think I've come to understand better actually what critical reflection is and what it looks like in practice. I think forensic care actually does that pretty well because there is a lot of emphasis on working as a team and doing that. What I think we don't do so well yet is doing that in a meaningful interdisciplinary way. There's a lot of silos because it's a bit of a medical model. Mm. There's a, there's that hierarchy of knowledge, what knowledge is valued the most and medicine's still at the very top of the hierarchy and social work and lived experience somewhere right down the bottom of the pile. So that's still something we've got to work on improving. And then when you think about corrections in that space as well, that would probably be even lower because it would not be seen as valuable. But I, like mm. you, think it is actually really critical. It's just that the words are different, you know, the language. So... The marathon is about really finding that uh, supportive peer group and supportive group of people that are interested in this and want to keep going along the pathway mm. with you. And I also think trying to not not staying in your own little world, looking at the bigger picture, what's happening nationally, what's happening internationally, because there's lots and lots of shared themes there, you know, and I think when you start looking and realising it's not just where you are, this is broader than that, in some ways it doesn't make you feel as, as well, it didn't make me feel as bad about what I was experiencing in the times that it has been stressful work because I realise these are stressors because yes. of the environment. You know, it's just been set up that way. Every, anyone would struggle with this. And I think for a lot of prison officers, you know, that, that may be helpful because then they realise that there's a broad scale mm. issue. It's not just them as an individual. And, you know, gee, that, that picks up that issue of contribution mm. of, you know, like, uh, you know, I've been aware of it for a long time that, and partly we're, Code Blue kind of broke it out a little bit. Yeah. We're silenced by our confidentiality yes. and, you know, in EAP, you know, I could see 100 employees from the same company all saying the same thing yeah. and the company will never know that. Yes, yes. And a lot of what I hear it just sits with me. Yes. I, I, I can't go anywhere with it yeah. because so, you know, in a way having those teams where they do the reflective practice. Yeah. And the content would be very important and very influential and very like, wow, this is grassroots yeah, stuff. Yeah. Often can't go anywhere. Yeah, that's or, true. Or, or, that's true. <laughs> you know, if it does, yeah. it 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 um uh it just get, gets roadblocked, you know. And and, and, yeah. and because it is confidential, a lot of it, and because, you know, you work within organizations and stuff, you know, a lot of stuff never gets to the to the light of day. And and um I think it's a major issue for all of the agencies mentioned in the Senate. Um 
hearing report uh, to go back and go, well, okay, let's, you know, and I read, uh, well, I don't know, but might someone's going to you know, had this toxic stuff and they've all had to sack people and it's mm. been, you know, mm. quite chaotic. Mm. Um, they're going to go back and do reflective practices and, mm. you know, to help mm. heal their workforce. Mm. Well, you actually have to do something with the reflective practices. You actually have to, yes. you know, and I did some work with a prison that, you know, I was very clear at the beginning, you know, if I go in and sit with your staff and do focus groups with them, it needs to be transparent. Mm. You know, those people need to mm. see that something came out of it. Yeah. That their yeah. contribution was valued, listened to, yeah, 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 no problem, no problem. And then at some point I get told, oh, I can't be transparent. Mm. Yeah. And, and I thought, well, I'm not going to fight that, you mm. know, so they mm. paid me to do the report. You know, I've done the report in honesty of, well, this is what your workforce said. Yes. And 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 uh, lots of issues, and but lots of directions and solutions as to what needed to be done to to correct it. Yeah. But then it hits the point where it can't be transparent. Um, mm. And and to me, that's one of the core issues of lived experience. If no one ever hears it, yes. Well, it doesn't influence change. That's right. And, that's right. And um, I think it's just such a battle that we've all got. <laughs> <laughs> listen to what your troops say. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think then you get you get back into the structural area of the discussion of, you know, our our systems of power and how we've structured society more broadly because that's that's where it stops often yeah. when it gets to that yeah. level. And I think when it gets to that level, that's when you start having conversations about, well, would you design prison systems the way we've designed them anyway? I mean, you wouldn't. You'd do it completely differently. A lot of people who work in prisons actually are abolitionists as well who yeah. think, you know, abolish prisons altogether because they're they're hopeless or certainly, as I've said before, you know, you, there might be a very tiny group that need to be secured for a period of time, but it would be such a small group and the whole industry would look incredibly different. I mean, the fact we even call it an industry is concerning on one level too because... Um, you, you shouldn't need it, really, if you could structure your society mm. differently. So you get into that realm then, I think, once it gets to a certain mm. point. But I think in terms of being able to sustain what you're doing every day, and I talk about it with staff as a, we call it a critical pragmatism. You know, the critical part is the ideology of what you really want to have in society. You'd like it to look completely different. But the pragmatic part of your work is, well, right here today, yes. you've got somebody who needs some help. So what are we going to do today? You know, and keeping the focus sometimes there is helpful yes. for that part of it. Otherwise, you become overwhelmed with yes. the, the restructuring and, and, and the rethinking. You know, that's the level of experience that um, is is so potentially useful yeah. in, in informing what we need to be doing. Yes, um, I agree. <laughs> the, but look, I've had a, a very a positive idea that's come out of our conversation, just hit me before, of often when, you know, you run groups or it all ends up in a negative space. Mm. It, it's just... You know, it just does because that's what people are experiencing. Mm. But, you know, that keeping the passion alive mm. of, of mm. you know, of, mm. um, you know, of correction officers or police or anybody that, you know, has that real commitment to to that. Yeah. They need to be brought together as reflective, not be isolated voices in uh, Unit 4 of where they work. Yes. But there should be forums where they can work with other correction officers and, and uh, you know, forensic care and, yeah. and to yeah, actually yeah. really develop their voice because they're not burnt out, they're not negative, they actually want to work in that space. So even making it more 
pathways for correction officers to do that, mm-hmm. um, you know, it could be really helpful in, in, in a, you know, can't change the system, but we can try and really keep alive those that are very passionate to do that sort of work. And, and, and if your gig is the more custodial, well, you know, yeah, that's yeah, what your gig yeah. is. Um, yeah. But um, but I think going back to the the idea of keeping your humanity mm. in that, that's actually more critical than people give mm. it credit yeah. because just being basically fundamentally respectful to another person in one of those mm. environments day in, day out is huge, you know, and there are people who come out of prison after spending a time who will remember one or two correctional officers that were decent to them yes. the whole way through. And that can keep someone's hope yes. in humanity alive, which is actually really, really important yes. for going on and being able to you then be humane to other people, you know, because you saw that moment of yes. kindness, you know. And I I really don't like the sort of toxic positivity trend that we're seeing everywhere. We've got to be happy about everything and, you know, pretend no. things is hunky-dory. It's not. But no. it's those just, fundamental things of just being just polite. Be, yeah. yeah. Let's yeah. be realistic and then build on that. Yes. I'll just finish with a, yep. a story. Years ago, I, I was um, the senior social worker at the MS Society for 15 years, long time. Um, and I was visiting a, a, a family with MS. The, the mother had MS and the husband was a prison officer. So yeah. this was years before I'd ever had yeah. anything to do with prison officers. And uh, he just happened to tell me, I can't remember what, what brought it up, but he, he, he'd he gone out in those days, it was the garbage truck came along and the guy jumped off the back of the truck, grabbed your tin, emptied it and put it back on your nature strip. And just <laughs> as he was going out to get the paper, the garbage truck rolled up and this uh, crim jumps off. All right. And he said he was a, he was a hardened crim. Yeah. And uh, this uh, ex-prisoner said to him, he said, well, Bob, I know where you live now mm-hmm. and I know how protective officers are of, of where they live. Mm. Isn't it lucky that you were one of the effing nice ones? <laughs> 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 and, you know, it's funny, like, you know, that, that just mm. stuck in my mind, you know. Yeah. Isn't, it, isn't it lucky that you were one of the nice ones? Yeah. And, um, and this guy said to me, it's very lucky I was one of the nice ones. <laughs> oh. um, yeah. But it yeah. does capture that, that, you know, prisoners will respect that. And, and a lot of the stories I've heard from uh, new officers has been very much where they've tried to do the right thing and what's been a reasonable request from the prisoner and that's been slaughtered into, you know, we, we're not doing that. Yeah. And, and, you know, and that's the space. That's well, yep. Well, why wouldn't we do that? Yeah, I you agree. Know, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much, Shirley. Pleasure. It's been fantastic. Thank and, you. And I, often when I have these wonderful conversations, think, well, have we solved anything? <laughs> well, we probably haven't, but we've raised debate. And, yeah. and that's the whole idea. Yeah. We need yeah. to be talking about these sorts of things. So thank you so much. Pleasure. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thanks very much, Thanks. Bruce. Thank you for joining me on this latest episode of Trauma from the Frontline. If you would like to get in touch with me or if you have any comments or questions regarding this episode, please feel free to email me at bruce at letstalkdifferently.com.au. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube at Trauma from the Frontline. If you are enjoying this series, please make sure you follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And if you find this information valuable, we ask that you rate the show five stars. It really helps the show grow and reach a larger audience. Until the next episode, please take care.
If this episode has raised any issues for you, free counselling is available through your organisation's employee assistance provider, Lifeline on 131 114 or Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636.